Alright, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad that you guys are here to worship with us today. Uh, we are, as, as Clay uh, read there, in Exodus chapter 5, and we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus. Um, we've been away for a couple of weeks uh, here in the book of Exodus, but I think it's going to be really helpful for us to jump back into the book of Exodus right now, even though we're in kind of this really depressing text this morning. I actually think this is going to be really helpful for us right now, and here's why. Because we just celebrated Easter, right? And what do we celebrate at Easter? We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate the fact Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. Jesus has set us free from sin and guilt and shame and fear and condemnation and hell itself. He has risen again. He has set us free. And I think some of us, what we implicitly do is we think, okay, because Jesus has set us free, we come out of a celebration like that and we think, okay, everything's going to be great now. Everything's going to be fixed now. We might not never say it this way, but we think about it this way. I'm a follower of Jesus and things are going to be good now. Things are going to be easy now. Life is going to go like I hope that it will. I'm uh, about to turn 40 in a few weeks, which means that I've gotten to the point in my life where my lower back reminds me of my age on a daily basis. Like, I literally hurt my back brushing my teeth earlier this year. And so, so a few weeks ago, uh, I decided after much urging from my wife and many of you in this room that I needed to go back to the chiropractor. So I've been gone for like 10 years. I go back to the chiropractor. I go in. They do the x-rays. They start cracking my back and my neck and my spine. And I went back three times that first week. I'm like, man, I've been to the chiropractor three times. Like, I'm good. Like, I'm fixed. I'm healed. I'm good to go. So I go to the gym, and of course, when I walk into the gym, uh, my body's telling me I'm 39. My ego's telling me I'm 19. And so, I, yeah, some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about right here. So I go in, and I go into this class, and there is like one other dude in the class, and then the class is like 25 women, and many of them are lifting more than I am. So all my insecurities start getting activated. I'm like, look, I like to believe that I can bench press anyone in this room. Now, whether that's true or not, that's what I like to tell myself. So I get in there, I throw some more weight on the bar because, look, I've been to the chiropractor. I'm fixed. I am good to go. And the next morning, I rolled out of bed. Now, when I say rolled out of bed, I actually literally had to roll out of bed. Because I roll over and I hit the floor and I am down for the count. I am on the ground. I am trying to catch my breath. I am gasping like a dying animal and speaking in tongues at this point. <laughs> and I go back to the chiropractor that Monday and I tell him what happened. And he's just like, yeah, we'd kind of prefer that you not do that. Because he said this, he said, healing takes time. Healing takes time. That was my mistake. My mistake was, look, I thought I've gone back, they snapped my back and, the, and my neck, and they did all these things, and now I'm healed. But I'm concerned that many of us think healing happens the same way in our spiritual lives as well. Jesus died, he's risen from the dead, I've died, I've risen with him, I'm healed, I'm set free. And this is where the book of Exodus is so helpful, because what the Bible teaches us, what the book of Exodus in our passage specifically teaches us today, is that often redemption doesn't look like we expect it to look. God promised to set us free, but the road to freedom is not easy, and it's not instantaneous. And there is pain, and there's trials, and there's heartache, and there is setback along the way. 
God is still working his plan. God is still bringing his people out of slavery, but the road to freedom looks different than we expect it to look. That's why this passage today, for many of us right here, even though this happened 3,500 years ago, for those of us sitting in this room today, is so vital. Wherever you are, maybe you're here, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Every week we have folks in our room exploring Christianity, asking questions, what does it look like for me to follow Jesus? And you've heard us talk about this. You've heard us talk about the healing and the redemption and the hope that Jesus brings. And, and for you, I just want to be honest with you today. Jesus does bring freedom. Jesus brings a freedom that you could never imagine. Jesus brings healing and redemption and hope and life that is better than anything else you could possibly expect. But sometimes the way churches and pastors talk about this is they talk about this as if you're going to come to Jesus and then Jesus is going to automatically fix all your problems. And so for you, I just want to be honest with you today. As you're exploring that, he's not going to do that. No, he's actually going to do something that is much better than that, but it's not going to be the way that you expect it. For some of us, we're exploring Christianity. For some of us, we're new Christians, We've started off in this life of faith, and often what happens when you start off in the life of faith is that everything feels new, and it feels shiny, and it feels fresh, and you're experiencing spiritual transformation that you've never experienced before, and this whole new way of seeing and being in the world has opened up to you, and then the newness starts to wear off, and you begin to fall back into these destructive patterns, fall back into destructive anger. You fall back into sexual sin. You fall back into bitterness. You fall back into addiction. You fall back into any number of things. And God is still bringing you out, but, but you start to feel alone. And what I want you to know today is that you are not alone in that. God doesn't just set us free instantaneously. And I, I want you to be aware of that reality so that not if, when it happens in your life, you're not going to be crushed by it when it happens. Maybe you're here today and you're just struggling. Maybe you're here today and, and you just look at your life and you look at your reality and you're really discouraged. You look at yourself and you think, man, I thought I would be farther along than I am right now. I thought I'd be a better person. I thought I'd be more godly. I thought I'd be more mature. Or, or, or maybe you just look at your life and, and it hasn't turned out like you thought that it would. You look at your marriage and you look at your job, and you look at the realities of your daily life, and it is not what you expected it to be. And again, I want you to know that you are not alone. This is the normal experience of God's people, not only in the world today, but all throughout history. That's why God gives us the scriptures, so that we know that we're not alone. So that we know that when we experience these kind of things, people 3,500 years ago were experiencing these kinds of things. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at this passage that shows us what, what it looks like when redemption isn't what we expect. And what I want to do is I want to look at that and see what can we learn for our own lives when it doesn't look like we expect it to look. So just to recap, again, we've been out of Exodus for a few weeks now, back into Exodus. Here's where we've been in the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus opens up, and God's people, who are the Hebrews, they, they, they have been living in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And they've experienced oppression and injustice and poverty and slavery and infanticide and attempted genocide. And they begin to cry out to the Lord, and the Lord hears their cries. 
And God raises up a man named Moses. And God meets Moses in in chapter 3 in this burning bush incident. And he says, Moses, I'm going to send you and I want you to go and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And then he says to Moses, here's all these signs. Here's the supernatural power that I'm going to give you. And you're going to go and you're going to show Pharaoh that I am with you. And so then, end of Exodus chapter 4 that Clay just read for us, Moses comes to the elders of the people and he says, God has met with me and God is going to set his people free. And at the end of Exodus chapter 4, as we just saw, they bow their heads and they worship. And you've got to realize where they are at this point. They have been in slavery for 400 years. 400 years. Generation after generation has been born and has lived and has died and has known nothing but slavery and hardship and oppression. And now God steps in and God says, I'm going to save my people. But there's a problem. See, in order for the one true God to step in and to save his people, first he has to set them free from their false god. So if you remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. In the ancient Near East, in ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh was considered a god, like literally a god. He was considered the son of the gods, a god on earth. And he held absolute godlike authority over his people. Here is this false god holding the people of God in slavery. And the thing about false gods is that false gods don't give up without a fight. False gods don't give up without a fight. The false gods in your life will not give up without a fight. The false gods in my life will not give up without a fight. The trauma that you've experienced from that abuse won't give up without a fight. The slavery that you feel from that addiction won't give up without a fight. The bitterness that's become entrenched in your heart won't give up without a fight. The patterns of sin that we have all developed by living life trying to be our own gods will not give up without a fight. False gods don't give up without a fight. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, look what it says. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh says, I don't know your God, and I certainly don't listen to him. As a matter of fact, I'm your God, and you listen to me. Verse 5, look what he says. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall still impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Pharaoh says to them, hey, you guys seem to have all this free time. Like you're trying to go out, you're trying to go in the wilderness and worship your God. Maybe you don't have enough to do. Maybe you're not working hard enough. So I'm going to take your straw away and you still need to make the bricks, same number of bricks, but I'm just not going to give you the raw materials that are necessary. Now, 
to, to understand what's going on here, straw was vital for making bricks because straw is what would hold the bricks together. So you're packing this mud together, trying to make bricks out of it, and if you don't have straw, the mud just crumbles. You can actually see examples of this. Uh, archaeological research has found examples of this. So you can go uh, to the Field Museum up in, up in Chicago. Uh, if you're in New York, you can go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You can go into their Egyptian exhibits, and you can see bricks from ancient Egypt, and you can actually see the straw that holds the bricks together. And, and, and they have actually found cities in ancient Egypt that are made with bricks without straw. It comes from the same time as the Exodus. So here's what's happening. Here's what's happening to the Hebrews. They are being worked to death under this awful, back-breaking slave labor. And now they don't even have the raw materials to do their job. They don't even have the raw materials to meet their quota. They are in a no-win situation. And Pharaoh knows it. Like He knows that they're not going to be able to meet their quota. He's simply looking for an excuse to beat them and to torture them and to oppress them. Because, friends, this is the way false gods work. This is the way false gods worked back then. This is the way false gods work in our lives. They give less and less, and they take more and more until they eventually destroy us. Pharaoh says, you don't worship the Lord, you worship me. You don't belong to the Lord, you belong to me. Look again at verse 9, Exodus 5, verse 9. Let heavier work, that's a really important word there, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So keep that in your mind. Now, look back at Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. It's on the screen in back of me. Exodus 4, 22. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Now, you don't catch it if you're reading in English, but if you're reading in Hebrew, this jumps out at you. Because the word that Pharaoh uses for work in Exodus chapter 5 is the same word that God uses for serve in Exodus chapter 4. It's the Hebrew word avad. And so God says, Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may worship me. Let my people go that they may avad me. Pharaoh says, you don't avad the Lord. You avod me. You don't serve the Lord, you serve me. You don't worship the Lord, you worship me. I'm your God. Now, fast forward 3,500 years. We, we don't have kings claiming to be gods in 21st century America today, but we have all sorts of things that claim our worship. Every single one of us has an object of worship. And you may not even consider yourself a religious person, but all of us worship some God. We all have something that is most important in our lives. We all have some center of gravity in our lives, and our lives revolve around that thing. And I don't know what it is for you. And it might be success. It might be security. It might be your sexuality. It might be a relationship. It might be your family. It might be something else altogether. But we all worship something. And anything you worship other than the one true God, whatever you worship will eventually disappoint you and destroy you. I've quoted this before. This is, this is an original with me, and I've, I've quoted it before here at Soma, but I think it's so insightful. So this is a quote that comes from a guy named David Foster Wallace. If you don't know who David Foster Wallace was, uh, he was a, a novelist, wrote a, a famous novel called Infinite Jest, um, was an agnostic. So not, not religious in any traditional sense, um, certainly not a Christian by anyone's definition. But listen to what he says. 
He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Worship money and things. If they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And that is right where many of us live. Default settings. We simply slip into worshiping these false gods. If I can have these things, if I can have this money, if I can have this status, if I can have this sex appeal, then I will finally be happy. And then you get those things. And those gods take more and more and more and they give less and less and less until they eventually kill us. They take away our straw and they command us to make bricks. And then they beat us to death when they don't offer the worship that they demand. Everybody worships. And so the question is, will you worship a God who kills you or will you worship a God who gives you life? And if you know David Foster Wallace's biography, that's why this is so haunting. Because this is a man who saw this, who knew that any other God would kill him if he worshipped it. And three years after giving this speech, he went into his garage and he hung himself. Every other God will eventually kill you. That's what false gods do. So here are the Hebrews. They've been under the slavery of this false God for 400 years. And God says, I'm going to set you free. And it looks awesome in Exodus 4. God's going to set us free. And then you get to Exodus 5, and things aren't getting any better. As a matter of fact, things are going from bad to worse. And redemption doesn't look like they expected it to look. And that happens in our lives as well. And when that happens, our tendency is to doubt God, isn't it? God must have missed something here. God must not have known this was coming. God promised to set me free but I'm still addicted to porn. God promised to set me free, but I'm still riddled with anxiety. God promised that he would heal me, but I am still so depressed that I can barely get out of bed in the morning. God promised that he would bless me, but my marriage is falling apart. Like those are real things. We could go around this room right now and we could do a show of hands and we could say, if we're being honest, yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's me. We're not going to do that, so relax. Just take a breath. We're we're not going to go there today, but we could. We could. If we were honest with ourselves, 
We are all experiencing these disappointments and these setbacks and these struggles in one way or, an or another. And our tendency is to think God doesn't know what's happening. God's taken by surprise because I'm not what I expected to be and life is not what I expected to be. That's what the Hebrews thought here. It's probably what Moses thought. But what's really interesting is if you go back a couple of chapters to Exodus chapter 3, you find that God knew this was coming. Exodus chapter 3, verse 19, God says this to Moses. He says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. He will, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Like, here's God. He says, I know what's going to happen. I know false gods don't give up without a fight, but I am committed to you. I am absolutely committed to your redemption. Even when you question that fact, even when you struggle to believe me, even when you are so disappointed in life and when you are so disappointed in yourself that you think I must have given up on you, I will never give up on you. I look back over my life, there are times in my life where I thought for sure God would give up on me because I keep messing things up. I keep falling for the same temptations. I tried to even convince myself that God didn't exist. These false gods seem to have such power over me. There's this quote from J.I. Packer that got me through many of those dark nights. J.I. Packer wrote a classic book, Knowing God. If you haven't read it, you should read it. But this is what he says. He says, there is tremendous relief in knowing his love to me is utterly realistic. I love that. Utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge, not of the best about me, the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. So disappointed. So disillusioned. Disappointed in myself, disappointed in life, but God is not disappointed. God is not surprised. God had prior knowledge of the worst about me. God knew this was coming, and nothing can quench his determination to bless me. Listen, disappointment is part of life. It is coming for all of us. And so the question is not, will I experience disappointment? The question is, how will I experience disappointment? The question is not, will disappointment come my way? The question is, how will I respond when disappointment comes my way? Because disappointment will show you what's going on in your heart. Disappointment will show you what you're trusting in. Disappointment will show you what you're worshiping. Disappointment will show you your God. And there are, there are really three responses. When, when life doesn't turn out, when things don't turn out like you'd hope, three responses. You can, you can run back. You can run away or you can run to. You can run back, you can run away, or you can run to. You can run back to slavery. Verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants, that's key, your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. They come to Pharaoh, they say, Pharaoh, we're your servants. We don't serve God, we serve you, Pharaoh. You're our God. 
Verse 20, Then they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The God who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence has just said to them, I am going to set you free. And what they are concerned about is what Pharaoh thinks of them. What what Pharaoh's servants think about them. They say, now now you've made us stink to Pharaoh. Now you've put the sword in his hand to kill him. Look, if you've read the book of Exodus up to this point, Pharaoh already thought they stunk. He was treating them like garbage. Pharaoh already had a sword in his hand to kill them. But this is the way slavery works. 400 years of slavery, and now they can't imagine being free. And so instead of trying to be free, they simply try to renegotiate the terms of their slavery. How are you doing that? How am I doing that in my life? God promises to set us truly and fully free. But instead of stepping into the full freedom that he bought for me with the death and resurrection of Jesus, we go back to these false gods. Because we're afraid to be free. We're afraid to walk away from them. And instead of listening to the voice of freedom, we listen to the voice of slavery. That's the question you got to ask yourself. Whose voice am I listening to? Whose voice am I listening to? Again, verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and what? And pay no regard to lying words. That's Pharaoh's goal. That's the goal of the enemy. The enemy's goal is to drown out the word of God. The enemy's goal is to get you to believe that God is a liar. And he will use whatever means necessary to drown out the voice of God. He will lay these heavy burdens on you. He will bring pain into your life. Sometimes he'll even bring prosperity into your life. He'll bring temptation into your life. He will crush you under the burden of guilt and shame and fear. He will use whatever means necessary to accomplish this one goal, to drown out the voice of God. He does not want you to hear what God says about you. God says you're chosen. You are loved. You are holy. You are free. You are forgiven. You are my people, and I am your God. Jesus died and rose again to set us free. That's what we celebrated last week at Easter. He defeated these false gods that have enslaved us through his death and resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Why? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been freed from sin. I've died with him. I've risen with him. I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And yet, how often do I forget that? How often do I go back to living like a slave when God has set me free? Letting the the voice of the enemy drown out the voice of God because if he can get me to stop listening to the word of God, he can keep me in slavery. So that's the first response. When disappointment comes, when hardship comes, when things don't go like you expected, you can run back to slavery. Second response is to run away, to run away from our failures. It's fascinating. If you, if you watch Moses develop all throughout the, the, the book of Exodus, you see Moses over 120 years of his life in the scriptures. 
And so here's Moses, Exodus chapter 2. So we, we covered this a few weeks ago. Exodus chapter 2, 40, 40 years earlier, remember this is what happens. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Moses is is 40 years old at this point. He thinks, all right, I'm going to step in. I'm going to save the day. I'm going to start a revolution. I am going to deliver my people. And he ends up failing in a colossal way. And what does he do? He runs. He runs and he hides. He runs away from his disappointments. He runs away from his failures. And this is how some of us deal with disappointment. This is how some of us deal with failure. We run from it. We hide from it. We avoid it. We deny it. We try to escape it. We try to forget it. But then something happens. 40 years later, Exodus chapter 3, Moses encounters God. And that changes him. And it doesn't just change him in the abstract. It changes the way that he deals with disappointments and failures. And now, instead of running away from his failures, he runs to God. That's the third option. In the midst of failure, in the midst of disappointment, when things don't turn out like you expect, run to God. Look look what Moses does. So Pharaoh has now run Moses out of the palace. Moses' own people have turned on him. And the Moses of Exodus chapter 2 would have run away from his failures. The Moses of Exodus chapter 5 runs to God in the midst of his failures. Cries out to God. Look at verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I mean, I love that. There's nothing pretty about that prayer. There is nothing dignified about that prayer. There is no theological jargon. There is no prettied up language. There is simply raw desperation and unmitigated honesty. That is not a textbook perfect prayer. And yet Moses is running to a perfect God and he's pouring out his heart to him. And what you find if you keep reading Exodus chapter 6 is that God hears Moses' prayer and God answers Moses' prayer and God steps in and God acts and God delivers his people. Listen, if you, I'm sure you've experienced this. I've experienced this in my life. Sometimes the disappointment in our lives is so painful that all we can do is cry out to God. And our prayers aren't pretty and they're not dignified. Sometimes they're not even intelligible. They're just the primal scream of a child crying out for his father. But this is the God who hears his people in their disappointment and their despair. Listen, you can come to him and you can be honest with him. You can be honest about your sin. You can be honest about your suffering. You can be honest about your disappointment and your pain because he can handle it. And he has chosen to love you anyway. 
I ripped this off someone on Twitter or Instagram. I don't really remember where it was, but I ripped it off someone. But it really resonated with me, and I love this. Religion says I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. The gospel says I messed up. I need to call my dad. How do you approach God? I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. I messed up. I need to call my dad. I'm a dad. Like, this is how I hope my kids relate to me. I hope they know that they can come to me and that I will love them no matter what. But my Father in heaven is so much more patient and loving and forgiving than I am. He can handle it. He can handle me being honest about my sin. He can handle me being honest about my suffering. He can handle me being honest about my pain and my disappointment. And here's how I know he can handle it. Because that's the way his perfect son prayed to him. Do you realize that? 2,000 years ago, God sent another deliverer. God sent a better Moses to set his people free. And the son of God hung on the cross. And as he hung there, suffocating in his own blood, bearing the sins of the world, he did not pray nice, dignified prayers. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Raw, unmitigated grief. The primal scream of a child crying out for his father. And his father heard him. And his father raised him up on the third day. And he promised that he will raise us up as well. He died and rose again to set us free, to set us free from guilt and shame and fear. And one day he will set us free from suffering and pain and disappointment and everything will somehow be more beautiful because it was broken. I've been following Jesus long enough now that I can look back over the course of my life and I can see this. I see heartache, I see disappointment, I see my failures, I see my own sin but I also see that God has been with me in all of it. He never left me. He never abandoned me. He ran after me, and he called me to run to him. So whatever disappointment you're facing, relational disappointment, career disappointment, disappointment over yourself, disappointment over your own sin, he calls you to run to him. Not to run away, not to run back, but run to your father who loves you. We're going to invite you to do that right now as, as we come to the Lord's Supper. Every, every week we take the Lord's Supper here, and this is, meal is a tangible reminder that you can come to him. This meal, this bread and this cup is a tangible reminder God calls you to run to him. In the midst of crushing guilt and pain and sin and fear, come and be reminded Jesus was crushed for you. In the midst of your brokenness and the brokenness of the world, be reminded of this fact. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. We don't worship some God who's just up there in the heavens. We worship a Savior who was broken for broken people living in a broken world. So if you're trusting in him, then come and eat and drink and celebrate and be reminded of that fact today. The way that we do that, we have stations at the front, stations in the back. Simply come down the aisle, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and take it and return to your seats. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, and, and you're exploring Christianity, and you're asking questions about faith, and we just encourage you, don't just do some perfunctory religious thing. 
We encourage you, stay in your seat while others come, take the bread and the cup, but think about and, and engage with this. Ask yourself, how would I face disappointment? How do I face pain? How do I face heartache? How do I face the trials in my life? Maybe some of those things are the things that keep you from trusting in God. And listen, I don't know why God allows all these things in our lives, but I do know that he wants to be with us as we walk through them. So whether you're a follower of Jesus, whether you're not a follower of Jesus, think about what that means. Think about what it means, the fact that God wants to be with you as you walk through the disappointments of life. If you've got questions about that, if you want to explore that with anyone, I uh, would love to, th to, to think with you and talk with you and pray with you uh, after the service. So let's pray. Let's take the Lord's Supper. Lord, we are broken people. We live in a broken world. There's disappointment in life, and often it doesn't turn out the way that we drew it up. And we're tempted. We're tempted to run back to slavery, tempted to run away from our failures. Thank you that we don't have to. Thank you that we don't have to run and hide, but we can run to you. Like children running to a father who they know will throw his arms around them, we can run to you. Thank you that Jesus' body was broken for us. Thank you that his blood was shed for us. Thank you that we don't have to pretend that we've got everything together because our Savior was broken for us. A broken Savior who gave himself for broken people. Thank you for his body and his blood. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.